Hey friends, just so you know, we enjoy the swear word and we rely on good old fashioned humor to get through some seriously dark subject matter. At no time do we intend any disrespect toward the victims or families of the victims in the cases we cover. Also, be sure to listen to the end for a few palate cleansing bloopers to reset your mindset. And with that, we thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy. Hello, friends. Welcome to Crime Will Tell. I'm Jamie. I'm Carrie. First of all, cheers, my friend. Cheers. Clink, clink. Oh, did you hear my coaster? Sorry about that. I, I didn't know what it was, but I heard a commotion. Yeah, I have a soapstone coaster and it, uh, it got you stuck to the it? bottom. Of, no, it got stuck to the bottom oh, of my glass. Because okay. condensation. Right. It'll get you every time. Mm-hmm. It's like a magnet. <laughs> a magnet. <laughs> Yeah. So what's drinking? Bourbon. Same. If anyone owns and or works for a bourbon company and would like to sponsor the show, let us know. <laughs> we will for sure drink it. Yeah. <laughs> we probably already are. Yeah, right? <laughs> but, okay, so. Oh, before we get oh. into the episode, I have a housekeeping item. Okay. Okay. So, so um, as you know, we've been getting requests for how listeners can support our show. And first of all, this is episode 10. So we are still a brand spanking new. Mm -hmm. And so for everybody that has requested and sent us notes and wanting to know how you can support the show, first of all, just know, oh my God, that means so much to us. Mind blown because like, I didn't even think that like, this is like something that's fun to do and it's like our hobby and it's our, you know, passion, but we hear you. And we have received enough requests now that we understand we have to look into this. So just know that we are looking into how you can support the show and we're looking into what we can do for you for supporting the show. So, and again, we have very demanding careers. This is a side hobby and we do all of our own everything. So we don't have a whole lot of extra stuff. So we're trying to come up with something really meaningful. So just know we're working on it. As of right now, the biggest thing that you guys can do to support the show is just tell people about it, share on social media, just anything to get more people listening. That's how we're going to be able to grow. But we just love you guys and appreciate your support so much. Yeah. It makes me a little, um, makes me a little verklempt. As it should. It's okay. <laughs> I know. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Moving on. Okay. Episode 10, first of all, whoop, whoop. Holla. I'm taking us to Chicago, Illinois. Oh, okay. In 2005. Okay. This is a case that I cannot believe is not more well known. Okay. It involves a federal judge. It involves murder. Shocking. It involves a murder plot. Whoa. A white supremacy group. Holy shit. It involves U.S. Marshals. There's all kinds of pieces to this fucking puzzle. Okay. I was so excited. Are you ready? I am like down with it. Let's do this. Okay. So this is the case of the Lefko murders. The Lefko? L-E-F-K-O-W. 
Lefko murders. murders. Murders as in plural. Yep. Unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> I didn't mean to sound excited about murders, but I'm just excited about the story. And it's it's a doozy. Let's do this. So this case is about Joan and Michael Lefko, who were very well-respected members of the legal community in Chicago, Illinois. So Joan was actually a U.S. federal appeals judge in the Northern District of Illinois in Chicago. She was appointed by President Bill Clinton in 2000. Okay. So prior to that, she was a U.S. bankruptcy judge and a U.S. magistrate judge before that. So, I mean, she was doing it. Just a total badass. I'd love it. Then her husband, Michael, was also, he was an attorney, a high-profile attorney in Chicago, and he actually handled multiple civil rights cases. Okay. And so he truly was, like, fighting for the underprivileged and actually argued two cases in front of the U S Supreme court. Really? Like these are the kind of people that I'm really, really glad chose to practice law because they really respected and were passionate about the judicial system. And they use their positions to actually protect everyone under the law true crusaders of justice so they were like the the minority in the in the lawyer world and the judge world that they weren't out from a selfish perspective but they were truly part of that profession to do something right in the world correct they wanted to represent everyone they wanted to do right and yeah it was just like reading about them i'm like oh my god like these are the people that they're heart was in the right place did they gravitate towards taking care of the underprivileged is that what yes. you said yeah oh, they just it. like they were the people that like fought for the underdog mm. so so michael and joan met in 1965 holy the, shit yes <laughs> a really long time ago yeah but this is so cute they met in the library at wheaton college adorable she like joan was attending wheaton college and she was in her senior year michael was studying law at northwestern law school which was was nearby so he just happened to be there they met fell in love and so joan and michael both got law degrees from northwestern and after 10 years of dating they got married in 1975 and two years later they had their first daughter They ended up having three more daughters, so they had four girls. That's a lot of girls in the same house. Show is. And in 1984, Michael started his own law practice, and the family settled into the Edgewater neighborhood, which is on, like, the north side of Chicago. Okay. And despite their demanding careers, they really seemed like they were always focused on their family. No matter how busy they were, they made sure that they had dinner together each night and Mm. they were both involved in taking their girls to practices and lessons and just they weren't relying on other people to take care of the kids. They were really involved with their daughter's lives, which I loved. And Michael actually ran for a local judgeship because he kind of wanted to go that route as well um, in 2002, but it didn't end up being elected. Mm. So he just kind of continued to work in his private practice, which was successful. 
And so we're kind of fast forwarding now to 2005. And in January of that year, Joan's 85-year-old mother, Donna, moved in with them. Okay. That's a big life change. Yeah. Joan's, Joan's mother moved in and they had one daughter still at home. Their youngest daughter, Meg, was still okay. living at home. So on February 28th of 2005, their day just started out like any other normal weekday. Their daughter, Meg, who, like I said, was still living with them, headed off to school. Joan left for work. And Michael had just had ankle surgery. So he was actually working from home at the time instead of going into the office. Later that same afternoon, Joan had called Michael and she'd called on his cell phone and she tried the house phone a few times, but wasn't getting an answer. And this was pretty rare. Okay. Typically, if Michael didn't answer, he would call right back within a few minutes. Like his phone was just in the other room or whatever, but he was always quick to get back. So by the end of that day, like the end of her workday, she was getting a little concerned that she hadn't heard back from him. So Joan got home that evening, like around six o'clock. And typically when she would get home in the evenings, her mom would be reading. Like she had a particular spot in the house, a little corner where she would like to read. And so she came in and her mom wasn't there, which was odd. So she went upstairs, didn't find anyone. And she's starting to panic at this point. She starts calling out for Michael and her mother, but she's not getting a response. And so she's like, fuck. So she ends up going down to the basement where her husband, Michael, kept his home office and finds their dead bodies. So both her mother and her husband were down there. Fortunately, the daughter was not home. But yes, she finds the bodies of her husband and her mom. Oh, man. In his office, Michael was lying face down on the floor and her mother was lying on her back near him and both were lying in pools of blood. So she called the police and when officers arrived at the house, she was just kind of sitting on the front steps of their house, just like in total shock. I I mean, I can't even imagine finding my mother and my spouse in my home. I know I, I don't have words. I just can't even imagine. So her walking into that scene is just... And it's the le- the last thing she was expecting. Like nobody, even if you can't get a hold of your spouse and that's an, a, that's an unusual thing, right? You go home, her spidey senses were probably up because you know your home, you know your home's vibe, you know what you're expecting and that wasn't happening. So she was probably like, this is unusual. My mother isn't where she's supposed to be. Nobody's answering me. It's quiet. It's still. And so of course she goes down to her husband's office in the basement and she finds yeah because i mean i'm sure cars were there and she was like they have to be here like and being the one to find to to like come upon that scene how how do you process something like that it can take it can take years to process something like that yeah and i mean there's got to be a little bit of like uh okay so they've obviously been killed like yeah what the fuck happened do i need to get out of here and like am i in danger yeah so as a precaution the u.s marshals actually moved joan and their daughter that was living with them to a safe house 
so she was assigned to round the clock protection until they could figure out what the fuck was going on. Mm-hmm. So they actually ended up going and getting their other three daughters and they were all kept on lockdown, which is great. So Joan had her four daughters and they were all being protected. So the police secured the crime scene and they start processing evidence. And so since she was a federal judge, the, the FBI was also brought in to investigate the scene. Mm. So you've got like Makes U.S. Sense. Marshals, FBI, and local Chicago police all kind of involved in this case. So there was a lot of law enforcement presence. This office where the bodies had been found was really clean. Which, Like, did he normally keep the office clean? Yeah, yeah. But there wasn't just like chaos. It wasn't like stuff oh. had been rifled through and whatever and it was just kind of like the bodies were there but like nothing else was really out of place so it didn't seem like a robbery or burglar right gone wrong okay so both michael and donna had been shot twice in the head mm. and they found cartridge casings from a 22 caliber pistol There was obviously, like, a lot of blood where the bodies had been discovered. And then there was, like, a hallway right outside of this office. And so when crime scene techs use luminol or Mm -hmm. whatever similar chemical that they used, I don't know exactly what it was, right outside of the office, they actually could see kind of, like, streaky patterns. Like somebody tried to clean up? Yeah, so out in the hallway, and it was it was very clear that somebody had, like, cleaned up in that area. So maybe the, the bodies weren't shot inside the office. So they were just trying to kind of figure all this out. They also found a cigarette butt in the kitchen sink. Okay. No one in their family smoked. So they were like, oh, we're going to go ahead and bag this motherfucker, yeah. right? And then downstairs, by the furnace... They found a 12-pack of beer, a pale ale to be specific. Ew. It was found down by the furnace, and a bottle of beer had been opened and was sitting on, like, a windowsill and had been drank out of. A bottle of beer? Yeah, just one bottle of beer, and then they found, like, the 12-pack by the furnace. And so they're like, what the fuck, Joan? Which I'm now going to referred to as the judge because i feel like she's a fucking badass and she (laughs) deserves to be called for sure so the judge confirmed that the pack of beer was theirs but that it hadn't been opened i guess that they'd had like a party Mm, the night before or you know just like a get together and they'd bought beer but no one had drank any And so they swabbed this bottle for DNA and they ended up being able to pull fingerprints from the bottle, which was okay. So like I said, the Chicago police, the FBI, and the U.S. Marshals are all involved. And they ended up creating this kind of task force to investigate the murders, which is awesome because it's great when they're all working together. So nobody's missing information, whatever. So they're trying to figure out who was the fucking target of this attack. Yeah, because her mother was, yeah, because her mother was also killed. Her sweet little innocent mom that had just moved there like months before, like had Mm. barely, barely been there. And so it was just sort of like, what in the fuck? So Donna, who was Joan's mother, was ruled out pretty quickly 
as the likely target. Makes sense. <laughs> Just an innocent lady from Kansas, right? They probably did like a bunch of research into her and realized that she was just an innocent lady from Kansas. Yeah, they're like, it's Donna. So yeah. just like a really quick bit about Donna because the judge was a fucking badass, but so was her mom. So I want to talk it. about this. So she grew up on a farm in rural, that fucking word. You did a good job. In rural Kansas. And unfortunately she had to quit school in eighth grade. Because she had to help her family on the farm, which was pretty common. Yeah. But she was incredibly smart, super curious. Like she constantly was reading and wanting to learn about like everything that she could. Just a super smart lady. And she was actually a really great poet, which I'm going to get back to later. Okay. That's going to come back around. And so her husband passed away in 1977. And mm. so she'd been living alone in Kansas for lots of years. Yeah. 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 And then it was just very, I mean, like within months before mm. this happened that she had moved in with Michael and Joan. Um, but it's just really clear to see where Joan or Judge Lefko got her badassery. Like it was just like a couple just tough ass ladies and I dig it. So Donna was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, huh? Yeah. Oh, that breaks my heart. Police wondered if Michael was possibly the target because, as I'd mentioned before, he'd actually run for public office in 2002. Mm. Because of that, their home address was not hard to find. Because, unfortunately, uh, when you run for public office, like that stuff becomes public. Yeah. Damn. So, had his exposure as a public figure potentially made him a target, they weren't sure. But they start going through Judge Lefko's cases to see if anyone had had any grievances based on her rulings. Because they, that kind of seemed like the most obvious route mm -hmm. that this was, was going. They started canvassing their neighborhood. And they got multiple reports of two suspicious men who had been seen in a red car who were smoking and drinking Cokes. <laughs> just, just chilling, I guess. So detectives actually went to the spot where this car had been seen and they found cigarette butts and a can of Coke. So they're oh, like, interesting. bingo, we're, we're going to take these fuckers to the lab. See yeah. what happens. So they're like, gotcha fuckers, but maybe it was going to lead to something. And then they actually drew up composites of the two men who were released to the media. So they're like, maybe, maybe this is going to be the miracle that we need. And we're going to find these motherfuckers. It wasn't, was it? Well, we'll see. <laughs> Meanwhile, Joan and her kids are just like tucked away somewhere being protected. And so they, she was asked if any cases that she had had overseen or had been involved with stood out to her that she thought maybe someone might want to come after her. And she actually mentioned three cases. Okay. She was like, actually, Yes. One case involved a gang leader. Ugh. One was an armed robber that I don't know what the deal was, but something about that motherfucker just stood out to her. And she was like, he just scared me. Okay. And then there was a dude named Matt Hale. Okay. Yeah. So she was like, look into that guy. So this motherfucker, Matt Hale, bleh, he was known in Chicago because he was the leader of a white supremacist group. Fuck. 
called the World Church of the Creator. And he kind of claimed that he was a lawyer, but he never actually got a law degree because he was just this giant, hateful fucking turd and wasn't shy about sharing his ignorant views. So he wasn't. (laughs) I think they were like a hard pass, dude, or run along like we don't want you to be a lawyer. Uh. In 1999, this dumb group of his got a lot of attention because there was a 19-year-old member named Benjamin Nathaniel Smith. Which anytime there's three names, it's never good. So this idiot went on a like a shooting spree through parts of Illinois and Indiana. He wounded eight people, killed two people, and then took his own life. Oh my God. So because of this publicity, it got the attention of a church in Oregon called the Church of the Creator. Same oh, name. God. Which was known to be this, like, peace-loving, multicultural church. Like, just kind of hippie, whatever. So, of course, they didn't want to be associated. Yeah. Tied to this, like, hateful, like, these, like, racist dipshits from Illinois. And they had the trademarked the name. Oh. So... In 2002, the church ended up suing Matt Hale and his group to stop them from using the trademarked name. And this case went to Judge Lefko. Correct. And ended up deciding against Matt Hale and his group. Oh, so that's why she was like, yeah, look into this motherfucker. Okay. Right. And so she issued an injunction to stop the, the group from using the name The Church of the Creator. On, of course, like the internet and any of his publications and products. Because I think he had books and some other shit. So I believe that they changed the name eventually to the Creativity Movement. Okay. That's creative. She also ordered that Matt Hale and his organization would be fined $1,000 each day that they continued using this name. And so this really just fucking pissed him off and he urged his followers to take action against the judge he basically was saying that the ruling put them at war with her so hale's followers started making threats against judge lefko online and he posted photos of the lefko family and their fucking home address wow so he's essentially like encouraging a hit. Yeah. And the judge and maybe her family. So it turns out that someone in Hale's band of ding dongs that he had was actually working as an informant for the FBI, <laughs> which is great. He secretly recorded a conversation where Hale specifically named Judge Lefko as the target. Wow. And so this informant stated that Hale had specifically approached him and asked him to murder the judge. Seriously? Yeah. So they had, like, on record, Matt Hale putting out a hit. So they had the recording? Yeah, on Judge Lefko. (laughs) (laughs) So in January of 2003, the FBI arrested Matt Hale and he was charged with soliciting someone to kill Judge Lefko. 
So during the time leading up to, and then during his trial, the Lefko family was still under like full-time protection of the U.S. Marshals. So just like during that period, she yeah. had previously been under protection of the U.S. Marshals. So this wasn't her first like rodeo. U.S. Marshal rodeo. And so in April of 2004, he was found guilty of solicitation of murder and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so in the months following his trial, she actually ended up releasing the security detail of the U.S. Marshals. Okay. I'm assuming that it was just trying to get back to like normalcy. normalcy. Yeah. Because I mean, they have four kids and she was probably just like, okay, we're fine. This is done. He's in, he's behind bars now. Let's move on. Yeah. And so like, I get that, but it was about a year later when Donna and Michael were killed. So can we take a, a moment here? So yeah. I don't know what it must be like to be under protective custody because there's a threat on your life out there. Right. So I'm trying to think about this from Judge Lefko's perspective. Her and her family put her in protective custody because she presided over a case and ruled against an individual who had solicited her murder. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to think like really, truly psychologically, what must it be like to be under a protective detail because your life could possibly be in danger? And it could be something as simple as you're pumping gas at the gas station. Mm -hmm. You are picking up your dry cleaning. You're going to the to the bakery to pick up bread. I mean, just your normal mundane right. day-to-day things. And like, what must it be like? To constantly be looking over your shoulder and then getting to the point where Judge Lefko got in that, I'm fine. There's no threat. I don't need protective detail. I can go do my normal life and and I'm not in any danger. Right. Like we don't need U.S. Marshals at my daughter's piano lessons or soccer practice right. or whatever. And I'm just trying to think like you and I, we have such, we are so not important. <laughs> like, Like nobody's hunting us. Like the idea that you're being hunted, like that just, that's a very scary thought. To have a career. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Where you could piss somebody off enough that they will hunt you down. As a judge, as a lawyer, like you're involved in these situations and specifically as a judge that you're overseeing things where at the end of the day, you're in favor of someone and you're pissing someone off. Yep. You can never make everybody happy. But so at the time of the murders, Matt Hale was still in custody of the U S marshals. Um, and, and so he was adamant that he and none of his supporters had anything to do with the murders. But of course, marshals are like, does this dude have type one liabilities? And (laughs) We we need to like figure this shit out. That's fantastic. I've never heard that before. Love it. They're like, we'll see about that, Matt Hale. Okay. So they start investigating the murders and looked into all of Hale's followers. Because they're like, we don't fucking know. Like, just because he's in custody doesn't mean that they didn't take him inciting the murder of the judge seriously. And that they just acted on their own. So they start weeding through all these 
fucking idiots that are following him. And of course, a lot of them had criminal pasts and would have been capable of following through with a hit. They know what to do. So the task, this task force investigated hundreds of leads and did hundreds of interviews, but they couldn't find any links tying Hale's group to the murders. Oh, that's an interesting twist. Yeah. Okay. So it's just like they tie into it, but so far they can't prove anything. Fucking idiots weren't involved. Frustrating. Yeah. So this task force are like, fuck. So they go back to the evidence from the crime scene and they end up getting the DNA results back from the cigarette butt okay. that was left in the kitchen, but mm-hmm. they don't get a match. So they're like, fuck. So they have the DNA profile, but they don't have a right. name. Right, so there's not a hit like in CODIS. Okay. So they compare that DNA to what was taken from the cigarettes and the Coke can from these mystery dudes that were seen in the red car, but they're not a match. So they're like, okay, we can rule out Matt Hale and his ding-dongs and then these two whatever dudes from the red car. Like, that's obviously totally unrelated. What about the DNA from the beer bottle? Well... They didn't get a hit from the DNA from the cigarette, but they did get a hit from the fingerprints. Oh, the fingerprints. The beer bottle. Okay. Yeah. So not the DNA, but the fingerprints. The prints were matched to a guy named Bart Ross. Okay. Which does that just not sound (laughs) like, of course, (laughs) fucking Bart Ross did this. (laughs) So was this a name known to investigators? Yeah. And so as they're going through the cases that she had tried, they learn that Bart Ross had a past court case before Judge Lefko. And they're like, motherfucker, this is our dude. So they can place him inside the Lefko house. All right, let's bring this motherfucker in. Right? So 10 days after the murders, the search then takes us to West Allis, Wisconsin. Okay, I know where that is. You do? Yeah. So I didn't know where it was, but it's like, I guess, just outside of Milwaukee. Yes. This little, little suburb of Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. So it's not very far from here. No. All these cases seem to keep leading <laughs> us back to fucking not far from us. <laughs> we'll hit some other spots in the U.S. But so a police officer was on patrol and he was like cruising around and he kind of noticed a minivan that had Illinois license plates and it was parked on a street that there wasn't always a lot of like outside traffic. If you parked there, you lived there. So it stuck out. Yeah. Plus it was one of those minivans that had like the sweet ass wood panels on it. Like what I had growing up. (laughs) The 1985 like fucking, yeah. The Dodge Caravan or Plymouth Voyager that had like the wood panels. On the outside of it. Ours was red with wood panels, but um, so when I saw this van, I was like, fuck yeah. Like I said, I wasn't in an area that got like a lot of outside traffic. So the van stood out to this cop. So he went on a call and then was like still patrolling and kind of came back through the same area. And that van was still sitting there. So he was like, that's weird. And something about it just struck him. Yeah. So he drove by the van and noticed that there was one person that he could see in the vehicle so he's like all right so he drove past it he could see that the van did like a u-turn and started to drive away so he was like oh fuck no okay well just so i'm clear the van was parked on a street Uh that 
doesn't get a lot of traffic. So usually if there's a car parked there. Yeah, there's not typically cars like parked along the street there. So the cop drove by it the second time and looked in and saw in the rearview mirror that it it like started up and did a U-turn away from the cop. Yeah. Okay. So then the cop was like, oh, hell no. And so the cop also did a U-turn and started following the van. Mm. And when the van got to a stop sign, the officer noticed that there was a brake light out. So he was like, perfect. Perfect. This is my opportunity to check this motherfucker out. So he flashes his lights and the van stopped on the road, but it was weird because it didn't like pull over all the way. It just kind of stopped a little bit more like, just like it was driving, just stopped where it was driving and like hung out there. So the officer's like, God damn it. So he starts approaching the van. And as he got near the driver's window, he heard a gunshot and was hit with pieces of glass from the window. So he scrambles and he goes back to the back of the van. He takes cover and calls for backup. So these other officers arrive and they approach the vehicle and they discovered that the man in the van had actually shot himself in the head. He had actually shot himself in the right temple. And so the bullet like went through the driver's side window. It just had almost hit the officer like as it exited, like as he was approaching the vehicle. Oh my gosh. It's really lucky that he wasn't hit. It's a crime scene at that point. They shut everything down. They're starting to evaluate everything. And the dude had a lanyard like around his neck, which held the gun that he had used to kill himself and a wallet. He had a gun on a lanyard around his neck. I think like a lanyard with a wallet and then like a holster. So it was all just like with him all the time. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So they found this wallet and they pull his ID and they find that the deceased man is 57 year old Bart Ross. Okay. And they find a note in the wallet that read everything is explained in papers in roller bag. So they're like, uh, what? So they search the vehicle and there's a small roller suitcase in the van that had a suicide letter detailing how he murdered Michael Lefko and Donna. In it, he makes it clear that Judge Lefko was his primary target and he actually regretted killing her mother and her husband. Wow. Yeah. Also, when I saw pictures of this guy, which will be posted to social, he looks like, uh, like if Barry Manilow... And a possum <laughs> had a baby. <laughs> like he's a, he's a very odd. So looking... he's not particularly attractive, is what you're I mean. Saying. I'd fuck him. Okay. <laughs> no. Okay. First of all, he's a man, so no. <laughs> Let's just get that clear right now. <laughs> I should look this guy up. So the letter that they find provides details that were from the crime scene that only the killer would have known. And when they searched the van, it kind of seemed like he had been living out of his van for a while. There were clothes and blankets and totes with supplies, like paper plates and shit. Like he had obviously just kind of been living out of it. But they also found boxes of twenty-two caliber bullets. God damn it. 
They also found boxes of 22 caliber. <laughs> Why is that such a hard <laughs> word? Caliber <laughs> bullets. God damn it. <laughs> Which matched the ones that were used in the murders. So they ended up taking Bart's Bart. I just can't get over that. His name was Bart. So they ended up taking his DNA and it was a match to the cigarette butt and the beer bottle that were found at the crime scene. So this was obviously the dude. And in his stuff, they also found a list that included 25 names of doctors, lawyers, and judges that he wanted to kill. So they found a fucking kill list with 25 fucking people on it. Wow. That's... That gives me the the heebie-jeebies. Who knows what would have happened if this cop hadn't discovered him and he panicked and shot himself. He was only 15 miles away from one of the other federal judges that was on the list lived. Could you imagine if you were one of the names on the list and found out about that? No. And I, I did watch a show on this and one of the judges, that, or not, it was one of the lawyers that was on the list was like, my name was on that list. Oh my God. Yep. He was obviously just on his way to the next person. And so they quickly learn that Judge Lefko wasn't his only intended target. She just happened to unfortunately be the first. So they start trying to figure out what, well, why there was this huge kill list and like, like, you know, like what the deal was. So in his van, they found stacks of paperwork and legal documents. And they learned that he'd brought a medical negligence case against phys- physicians who had treated him. Bart so they did? Yeah. So okay. they start digging deeper into him and his past. They learned that he was a Polish immigrant, which is why his fingerprints were in the system. Like he had no criminal record, but because he was an immigrant, that's why his fingerprints were in the system that they were able to match. We take finger finger we take fingerprints of immigrants? Yeah, like I whenever didn't know you that. whenever you like come into the states and you're an immigrant and you go through the immigration process. Okay. So, that was that tie-in. So he worked as an electrician, he owned a home and cars. Like it seemed like he was doing Did he have a family? No. Okay. Um, but so it seemed like he was doing what quite well after immigrating to the u.s in the 1990s but he had gotten cancer treatments because he had like a rare form of cancer um, and he had gotten cancer treatments at the university of illinois medical center which was in chicago the cancer had gone into remission at one point but ended up coming back unfortunately and so this led to doctors having to do surgery to actually remove the cancer like they had to take part of his jawbone okay so that's why his photos some of his photos look a little wonky so you looked him up i did yeah he definitely looks like if barry manilow had made sweet passionate love to a possum one night and it resulted in bart ross yes i told you accurate as fuck Mm -hmm. so you know he felt like that surgery left him disfigured And he wanted to hold somebody accountable for it. So he filed civil suits against the doctors and the hospitals who had treated him. He had lost all of his teeth. Mm. He could only open his mouth a quarter of an inch. He couldn't eat solid foods and was always in pain. 
and was relying on morphine and Tylenol with codeine for relief. So, I mean, that sounds horrible. Like, I get get that this dude was suffering. Also, sometimes that's what happens. Sorry, there are consequences to this cancer, but... You're cancer-free and you're alive. Like, it's not always pretty, but that's just the reality of it. He was obviously denied these motions, but kept filing just like appeal after appeal and was desperate and was just trying to find like anyone that would help him go after these doctors. He searched all over the country and had consulted hundreds of doctors and lawyers about the case, but he was just getting like turned down left and right and was pretty much being told that he didn't have a case. That just pissed him off and just drove him deeper and deeper, like into crazy town. So he was getting like increasingly more paranoid and his allegations just kept getting wilder. Like he made accusations about doctors and judges saying that he would, that they were like conspiring against him. Hmm. He was making reference to like nazis doing experiments during the holocaust like and al-qaeda like he was just like bringing in all of these random things into his letters and stuff and he was actually seeking one billion dollars in damages okay am i the only one that just had the mental image of austin powers (laughs) and that scene where he requested one million dollars mm-hmm. and everybody laughed at him and then he requested one billion dollars and then they took him seriously <laughs> so but he was asking for one billion dollars which is just absurd unrealistic okay. yes it's almost like for bart ross this became like so sing his like singular focus where it- it's almost like he became obsessed with it for sure and every time he got turned down he just became more indignant i mean he he was just frustrated and i understand but he was just like getting he at like at some point he should have just probably let it go but instead he just kept get, getting deeper and deeper into it so in 2004 bart's case made it to judge lefko's court which is where this all ties in she was incredibly sympathetic to him she apologized to him for everything that he had gone through but that under the law there was nothing that could be done for him like he couldn't have asked for a better judge for this to go to because she truly sympathized with him but she was just like i there's nothing i can do legally i i have nothing at my disposal oh my god so and she ended up having to dismiss the case And so Bart was absolutely obsessed, like I'd said, and he spent all of his savings trying to find lawyers and anyone that would kind of come on board with him. He ended up getting evicted from his rental house and began living out of his van. Wow. So police ended up searching the house that he was renting and like a lot of his stuff was still there. So they, you know, did a full search. They discovered that he had built a shooting range, like a gun shooting range in the basement. He had been testing different types of silencers and was shooting into like phone books that he had taped together. So him using a silencer, that would have explained why none of the Lefko's neighbors had heard gunshots the day of the murders. So they're just like, holy shit. They also ruled out that anyone was working with him 
or that he was part of any sort of like conspiracy group or anything. He was just an angry, bitter little dude mm. acting completely alone. Wow. Yeah. So Judge Lefko, she must have felt an immense amount of guilt. She did. Yes. Ugh. I Yeah. So I think that she carried a lot of guilt that like her career made her family and her a target. Yeah. And like they just ended up being the victims in this case. So he had left this suicide slash confession letter i guess and in it bart detailed how the murders had happened he said that he broke into their basement in the middle of the night while everyone was upstairs sleeping and he just kind of hid down there that's fucking creepy exactly so the next day after judge lefko had gone to work michael had gone downstairs to work in his office and he just kind of popped out and fucking shot him so donna Judge Lefko's mother was upstairs and she'd heard something. I mean, he'd used a silencer, but it had she had still heard something upstairs, you know, like him falling or right. whatever. And so she was at the top of the stairs and she went to check on Michael. And so he ended up shooting her, dragging her downstairs and putting her in the office. So his plan had been to wait for Joan, Judge Lefko, to get home and kill her too. But he ended up panicking and had left the house like sometime in that afternoon. So mm-hmm. fortunately, she was spared. Joan and her daughter would have likely become victims as well as they had arrived back home that day. So it could have easily been four people that were murdered instead of two. And then some. I mean, you know, he had 25 people on this fucking list that he was going to kill. You know, sometimes after these like really horrible tragedies are like really good things that come from them like legislation or whatever that can help lead to protecting other people in the future so after this horrible tragedy and after losing her husband and her mother she began campaigning for increased judicial security she spoke before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee regarding the need for offsite security for federal judges to help protect them when they're yeah. like outside of the courtroom. Absolutely. So she said, quote, there is no doubt in my mind that a security system would have saved my husband's and my mother's lives. That man broke into our house and there's a 98% likelihood that it wouldn't have happened if we'd had a home security system. And people don't litigate over small things that don't matter to them. They litigate over things that matter a lot to them. If they lose, they can be enraged. Obviously, this puts judges at risk of retaliation from people who didn't have rulings that were, you know, like in their favor. So they're always at risk. They're always going to be targets. Like, I can't even imagine for judges how scary that must be that when you walk out of a courtroom when you walk out of a courthouse you aren't protected anymore it would be so easy for someone to just follow them home i could i couldn't i couldn't do it and so because of her advocacy in may of 2005 congress had approved the funding to pay for security systems in the homes of federal judges And she also ended up speaking about the need for increased security online for public officials. 
and for restricting personal information. Absolutely. Like, their fucking home addresses. Are you, you kidding and I me? don't even want our home addresses out right. there. Right. I don't want my last name out there. Exactly. And so she, you know, advocated for these things not being posted on the internet and her advocacy and her voice helped lead to the creation of the 2007 Court Security Improvement Act, which helped protect. Yeah. On a much more personal level, I loved this so much. As Joan, Judge Lethko, and her siblings went through their mother's things, they discovered a bunch of poems that she had written. I think that they knew that she wrote poetry, but they hadn't really ever read anything that she had written. So in her honor, they took these poems and they released a book of all of her poetry. And it's called I Speak of Simple Things by Donna G. Humphrey. I love that. Yeah. And so about her mother, Judge Lefko said... To her, the written word and the sound of words were her music. Writing was art for her, and it was a way to give expression to her life, which was filled with many frustrations. She also said that there is no good in what happened to us, and I can do nothing to make good of it, but publishing the poetry was a light in the darkness, a piece of resurrection. I love that. Yeah. So, like, in the end... There's that like beautiful yeah. book of poetry out there. And it was a way for her to, you know, honor her mother. And I just thought that was like beautiful and a good note to end on. That's the thing that I find fascinating is one of the things that we learn in true crime cases is the resilience of the human spirit mm-hmm. and how different people who go through these horrifying acts of just ungodly terror they find a way to see the peace they find a way to see the good they find a way to see the light or the silver lining if you will to move on because otherwise you're going to be swallowed by guilt and grief and uh, what if I had done this or what if I had done that or what if I had made this different choice And it it calls into question your ability to influence your free will. And it calls into question your ability to be safe. Is that really, like, is being safe really, truly a thing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Especially when you're in a high-profile job, like a judge or a lawyer or prosecuting attorney or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. She now has grandchildren. You know, is just trying to make a life and like live through them and her children, her grandchildren, but also have like beautiful memories of her mom and honor her and also to protect other judges and public officials and their families and prevent the same tragedy from happening to another family. I think it's very commendable. I think that she's, like I said, just a badass chick and Yeah. yeah is someone that I'm glad is a judge and fighting for people and making positive changes and, you know, making things safer for people. And I just think that's really cool. I try to think about the relatability of this. Like, you know, the only way I can figure out how to relate to it is if, if what I'm doing in my life causes Sean to be killed. Right. You know, when you're, when you're married to your, to your ride or die, right? You're married to your person, you're human. Yeah. 
to have something so tragic happen to your person and then, and it's final. You don't have your person anymore. I just don't know how you come back from that. So the fact that she's finding some light in publishing her mother's poetry and but yeah, it's like she could have easily retired and just given up being yeah. a judge, but instead she continued to fight for change. It's inspiring because none of us know how we would cope in those situations and what route we would take. But for her to just be like, you know what? I hate that it happened, but I am in a position that I can make some real change. Yes. And I'm going to be a voice. And she has. like, She has truly made positive changes for a lot of people and probably saved lives. And I just think that's fucking great. So. Yeah. What a ride. Yeah. So that's the crazy case of the Lefko murders. That is crazy. And the, the murder plot that fortunately was stopped yeah 25 people i mean it's unfortunate that he did succeed in the first name on the list but that he didn't get to the second name yes and and if i were judge lefko i would take some comfort in that i think yeah damn so there's that yeah and thank you to all of everybody all of everybody sure uh for listening and supporting the show I don't know how to say how amazed we are at the support. Like it sounds almost trite and I don't mean for it to be trite. Like, Oh my God, thank you so much for the support. But like, it's like truly humbling. Like, yeah, you and I looked at each other. We look at each other and we're like, Oh my God. Like, like really? I don't know. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty fucking rad. So yeah, it's really rad. If you haven't already check us out on Instagram or Facebook and rate review, subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You could also send case suggestions to crimewilltellpod at gmail.com. And like we said at the beginning, like the best way to support the show, if you want to, is to tell your friends, share us on social media. Any way that we can get more people listening is how we're going to grow and be able to continue doing this for a super long time. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And we're incredibly grateful for the people that are listening and supporting the show. Yeah, we love so you grateful. Guys. And it makes us want to do like a really, really good job. Yeah. But I don't know if you guys know this, but podcasting is legitimately hard. Yeah, it's it takes a lot of time and work. <laughs> it's not easy. But we're we're doing it. Anyway. Goodbye, Carrie. Bye, Jamie. Okay, thank you, because I don't want you being all upset while we're recording. No, we don't like that. (laughs) Now you're my bitch. Mm, You can, okay. Sphincters. Okay, so. Because I had, like, whipped a shitty somersault on tile floor. Well, I am glad. What the fuck did I do? Somebody's got to work in the morning, and it's me. Is that too much to ask? We'll figure it out. We're smart, ladies. 